Welcome to Cooper Talk, presented by Walk My Mind. Bring your body, bring your mind. This is Walk My Mind, a holistic approach to wellness that connects the dots of physical, mental, and emotional health. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. I have to tell you something, people. I'm, uh, I'm pretty excited about my show today. My friend uh, John Ubroth sent me a message the other day on Facebook, and he said, would you like to interview this gentleman? And he told me his name, and, the, and this gentleman has an amazing body of work, and he has a new movie out. We're going to talk about that first. Then we're going to get back to his body of work. But my guest is Jeremy Kagan. How are you doing, Jeremy? I'm glad to be here. It's funny. I want, to talk, I want to start. I usually start off with everyone's career, but I want to start off about your movie, Shot, that is out in limited release. And it's funny because after John had told me about it, uh, a friend and past guest, Xander Berkeley, had posted how great the movie was. He posted on his, his uh, timeline on Facebook. So it was just weird that one day after I talked to John, the movie came up. But the new movie, Shot, and, I, I, and now you, you came up with a story. And how did you get this whole project started? Because it seems like it's very to these time and days, it's going to be very impactful. Well, I hope it is impactful. Um, I realized about uh, six weeks ago, after working and developing this project, probably since I was about six years old, but realistically probably since uh, 2010, that this movie is uh, an experience that hopefully will motivate people to save a life. Um, And I know that's sort of a big goal for a movie, but I realize that's why the movie's there. Um, and if people see this movie, which is about the issue of the epidemic of gun violence that we have and our tendency to use guns to solve problems, if someone sees this movie and decides not to do that, not to pull out that gun and commit suicide, not to go buy that gun in order to get revenge, whatever that situation might be, uh, then this movie's done a really good job of, on, on helping us move past um, our tendency to think a bullet is going to solve a problem. Um, and the movie specifically is about what happens to an innocent bystander who gets shot, which, of course, unfortunately, is a common thing that happens every single day in this country. I mean, if you like to look at or, or don't like to look at numbers, they're still out there. Ninety people today uh, will be uh, killed by a gun. Well over 250 will go to hospitals today because they've gotten shot by a gun. Um, in the time that we have this conversation, a child will probably be shot by a gun. Uh, it's pretty nuts. I mean, you know, if an, if an alien were to come land on, on our planet and then come over to this particular uh, society and country and see all of the gun violence and then go to around the rest of the part of the world and see that no country has anywhere near the similar incidents daily of this gun violence, they say, well, what's wrong with your country? Um, And uh, listen, this is a spectacular place to live. I am every single day grateful that I am American and living at this very moment. At the same time, I also recognize this is a real problem. And and, and the problem also is exacerbated by what I and many of my colleagues do, which is um, I'm a movie maker and I make television shows and I've won an Emmy because the opening sequence in that show, someone got shot. My very first job uh, as a television director, someone got shot. I've made the feature films that deal with guns like The Big Fix and Heroes. Um, I, I've, I've shot a lot of people in the movies. Um, and I realize that oftentimes we kind of keep that idea that the gun is a solution to issues. And um, I think that our media has to be a bit more responsible. And I think the movie, in many ways, is a response to that as well. So um, that, that's part of I th- the motivations for 
having made this movie. And again, I hope the, whoever listens to us gets the opportunity to see it in whatever form. And if you feel it's effective and meaningful to tell other people to see it, and maybe we'll all together as a group have actually maybe stopped one one person from getting hurt. I Wouldn't think, that be a fabulous thing? I think, you know, we need the education. Because, you know, I think about guns, and, and I grew up, and, you know, I grew up in the suburbs of uh, Philadelphia in New Jersey. And we, my brother and my father would shoot. They wouldn't, they would hunt. They never caught anything. And we had guns in the house, but they were locked up. And as kids, we knew you didn't go anywhere near that, even though we knew where the key was. And I think now just people don't get the education. And I think a lot of times they, they don't take it, that they don't think that guns are actually dangerous. Yeah, I think the issue is that, um, that, we have so many of them. There are over 100, 320 million of them in this country. Um, and the idea that, oh, anybody can use it because that's what we see, you know, turn on the TV. And I'm sure if we did turn on our TVs right now and scan through, somebody would have a gun and it seems to work just fine. In the story that we tell in this movie shot, um, there's a 16-year-old kid who's being bullied and he's got a cousin who... In the neighborhood that they live in, it's easy access to get guns, as is true in certain neighborhoods in our, our urban environments, and gives the kid a gun. The kid's kind of just looking at the gun, trying to figure out exactly how it works, and of course he doesn't quite get it, and bam, a shot goes off, and it hits an innocent bystander. In this case, a character that uh, we met just earlier on in the movie, and he and his uh, wife are having difficulties. It looks like they're going to split up for good. They're taking a walk outside a, a coffee shop, and suddenly he goes down. Um, and uh, for the next hour in this movie, uh, we experience, second by second, everything that happens to somebody when they get shot. Um, it is a visceral roller coaster ride, and it is tough, and it is goes through all these sort of emotional and uh, changes from panic and fear to anger to sort of a, a, a bargaining about, you know, if I do this, can I still survive? All the time that goes on. I mean, if God forbid some of your listeners would get shot and let's say walk onto the street, there's going to be that five to ten minutes before an ambulance arrives. And then there's the long ambulance arrival. And then there's all the things that happen once you get into an ER. And we track all of this um, so that the viewer really goes through a... a uh, uh, a, a like as if it's happening to him, her, or them, and that's the idea because it's an awakening. I mean, you say, "Wow, if this is happens to people, this is really tough." And point is, in movies, you know, we shoot somebody and then we cut away to something else. And uh, I didn't want us to turn away. I wanted us to face this so that those of us who do have guns remind ourselves how dangerous they are and make sure, like your family did, that. Um, these are very dangerous objects. They can hurt you. They can hurt somebody else. They should be only used for very specific purposes. Um, and they should be, uh, anyone who uses them should be totally trained to know exactly what they're doing with them. And they should be kept in safe places. And, you know, here's the weird thing. I, I, the NRA, which now has taken the stance that anybody does says anything about changing any of the ways guns are, are, are sold or operated is, is the enemy of, uh, of them. 
you know, in the 1970s, the NRA was a major advocate for gun safety. This is amazing. Um, and it was a major advocate for background checks so that people who were irresponsible didn't get a hold of guns. And it was a major advocate for those people to actually, who were the manufacturers, to make sure these guns were made even safer. And today, guns can be made incredibly safer, just like your cell phone. You can have a little thing that makes a thumbprint on the gun that you either have already or the one that you might be wanting to buy, and then no one else can use it. Because one of the problems is oftentimes guns get stolen, and then those stolen guns get used for villainous purposes, and uh, we end up being responsible because it was our gun. Um, so there's lots that can be done, but unfortunately, um, the NRA has switched positions. One may be because they were financed by all the people who make guns, and they want to sell guns and bullets, and so they don't want to have anybody that's not buying them. And the other is, I guess, this, this kind of fear that is... Uh, an issue for lots of us, which is that there's somebody out there that wants to get us. Um, and that fear in uh, the leadership of the NRA goes to, like, the government someday is going to want to take away our guns and be an evil institution rather than represent us all. And so from their point of view, um, they're really, let's have our guns and don't anybody touch them. Um, but from the rest of our point of view, and even their membership, 74% of their membership thinks that background checks should be much more increased in proof so that you know, people who are irresponsible don't get a hold of guns. 74% of their membership. And yet that's not their voice that's out there in the, in the public. So it's an issue, and I'm hoping this movie... First of all, entertains you and gives you quite a ride, which I believe it does, and also sort of stimulates you to say, you know, there's something I'm going to do, make sure that the gun I have is safe, if that's what you have, uh, or I'm going to do what I can to make sure that uh, people who get guns are not the, the people who, sh who should not be having them. Now, now, what made you want to tackle this typical this, this subject was it something in your past or what because it's something that you know as a director you want to make a message but also sometimes it's hard to get movies made when they're a certain topic what made you want to tackle this because i know the stories by you and i believe your partner wrote the screenplay if i'm if i'm correct that's um, correct um, um, the, um uh, the, the first version of the screenplay was written by one of my former students who did an incredible amount of research and was able to actually meet emts and doctors and nurses and people who had gotten shot and really gave a a, a veracity to the storytelling and then my partner Annika Campbell who is a wonderful writer um, sort of expanded the emotional uh, uh, storytelling and the and developed the characters that we see in the movie right now you know uh, this is this is a strange thing I'm gonna say that the movie wanted to get made through me I cannot say that I had this moment of Revelation, I must make a movie about this subject. It's just, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of racking my brain now that movie is out there in, in, in theaters in nine cities, by the way, if uh, only for a very limited time, but it will be released on VOD and then on uh, you know, digital, the digital accesses so, so that you maybe find it on Amazon and iTunes and, and Netflix in the uh, end, of the, end of the year. Um, if you haven't been able to go see it in the theater or hasn't played in your city. But um, to ask myself that question, because, you know, now right now is the time that because the movie's got this release that people are, are, are asking questions like you are or some, some journalists. And, and I don't have this sort of answer of this, this moment when, you know, I know that um, back when I was a film student in the last century, 
I remember seeing two phenomenally great movies, Bonnie and Clyde and uh, and um, and Peck and Paws, The Wild Bunch, and they were great, great films and had lots of guns in it, lots of, and for the first time, a lot of blood splurting, which we hadn't seen before, and this was all sort of like new and exciting and visually dynamic, and I do remember back then watching particularly the Bonnie and Clyde movie and asking myself, well, there were a lot of innocent bystanders who got shot in banks and, you know, and cops who were doing their job and got shot. And we never found out what happened to any of those people. So in the back of my mind or somewhere in the you know front of my knee, this issue has always been on my mind. And then when I became a professional filmmaker and made so many movies and television shows and shot so many people, I think it's all sort of been... I don't know, sort of simmering, you know, on the back stove of my creative process. And and I began to think partially because ageism is an issue in our business and my career um, had sort of gotten less productive commercially. And there was part of me that said, you know, maybe I should just go make a movie because I love making movies uh, on my own and just figure out, you know, something that I really care about, do it within the independent world rather than trying to do it in the large major cultural, you know, uh, uh, commercial world. And I think the idea of this merged into what about taking on this subject? And then I struggled with, well, yeah, but what would I do and how would I do it? And that's where the idea came. What if we actually experience what it's like? Um, which we've never done. Um, and I met a lot of people who had been shot and heard their stories and then realized, particularly because I'm interested in media that is multimedia, I've made lots of movies that have had um, multiple images at the same time on the screen. And I realized that because of the technology and because we're all multitaskers anyway, we can, we can watch TV while we're looking at our cell phones, while we're on a computer, and we can do it all at the same time, that I could tell two stories at the same time uh, and, and therefore, the viewer gets double their money um, <laughs> uh, because I could tell the story of everything in real time that happens to the persons that got shot and everything in real time at the same time that happens to the person who is the shooter. In this case, a 17-year-old you know, unintentional innocent kid. Um, and so when you go to see the movie, you will in the first hour have this sort of like multiple image storytelling. And it's, I kind of find it fascinating and, and sort of very stimulating and extremely involving. So um, I knew I could do this. Uh, if I wanted to make this kind of movie with that multiple screen maybe 10 years ago, uh, it would have been much more difficult uh, just because of the technology. But right now, um, it's so much easier to do this kind of stuff with the mobility of cameras and the editorial processes that have been speeded up so much that what used to take you know, an hour or a day can take about uh, 20 seconds. So I was able to know that we could do this within the limited uh, resources we had, and I believe that audiences could also experience it. Now, as a director, how do you keep the intensity of these scenes? Because as you said, you know, it's not Bonnie and Clyde. You know, it's you want to have people to actually feel what the person sees. I mean, we all know, you know, when you see someone get shot in a movie, a lot of times you go, oh, it's a movie, it's going to get shot. But you, you want to give that intensity and the feeling. How as a director do you, do you come ab about doing that? I mean, what do you have to do? I mean, how do you keep the mode on the set? I know you're, you're all professionals, but it's such, it's probably such intensity. The scenes, I think John said one scene, he just, he, he was freaking out. I mean, how watching it, you know, how, how do you keep an intensity as a director and just keep it all together? Well, you know, it's a sort of a fascinating issue about 
being in the middle of something and witnessing something. And this sort of applies to all of our lives, just, just in general. Um, you know, when we're in the midst of something, it's so involving that all of our emotional and psychological makeup just gets, uh, you know, sort of alarmed, you know, and, and it's just, just, just sort of radiating uh, in, in us and outside of us. Um, and at the same time, we're also the witness of what's happening to us, you know, um, and, and, and that's kind of a, that's kind of the evolutionary goal in many ways. If your listeners are on spiritual paths, if any of them are, they, they've often heard from, uh, you know, leaders and gurus and people like that. You need to be able to develop the witness of what is happening to you rather than just being the victim of what is happening to you. So, you know, um, I love this story. Uh, Ram Dass once had a friend who was who was very depressed and called him in the, late in the middle of the night. And he said, Ram Dass, I'm very depressed. Can, can you help me? And Ram Dass said, sure, let me help you. What's going on? The guy started to tell his story and said, I'm really, really depressed. I'm feeling terrible, terrible. I said, I got it. I got it. Let me ask you something. And the guy said, yeah. I said, are you aware that you're depressed? And the guy said, oh, of course I'm aware I'm depressed. That's why I called you. I'm, you know, I'm really depressed. And that's that. Yeah, I understand you're really depressed. But, um, and you're aware you're depressed. Is your awareness depressed? When the guy thought about this, and said, no, I'm depressed, but my awareness of my depression is depressed. That's just my awareness. It's like, you know, we're like this, 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 this uh, bulletin board in which we pin on all kinds of emotions and sensations and thoughts, and we think all those little pins are who we are, but we're actually the bulletin board that contains them all. So the issue about a filmmaker, in a way, is we're kind of like the bulletin board. We're the witness. So yeah, horrible things are happening in front of the camera, but we're right next to the lens watching it and sort of directing it and making choices, and so therefore, Although, if it's any good on the set, you as a director actually feel it. I mean, there are a number of times when I was really emotionally stirred up. Um, but at the same time, I'm also aware of it. I'm also the witness to it. I'm also saying, we're going to move the camera over here. I'm also saying to the actor, remember what's just happened at this moment. I'm also saying to the actor, you know, this is what you want. Um, and so therefore, I'm you know, seeing it as the whole rather than being totally, you know, in it in which you can't see it at all. Um, so that's the, the difference. And that's sort of like, you know, a way we want to all be directors of our own lives, in quotes, so that we don't end up victims, even when we're victims. Um, and meaning when seeing things happen to us that we didn't plan that really cause us, uh, you know, upset, whatever they are, um, that to be able to also know that we're the, sort of observer of all of this as well as the person in the middle of it. So that's the process. Um, what I wanted, and this is to the brilliance of our actors, particularly Noah Wiley, whom I'm sure lots of you know from from uh, from his recent television work for um, uh, Fallen Angels and, and the um, uh, ER work that he did, because he was the, one of the young doctors on ER when it first started and went through all the you know, 15 years of it. Um, you know, he's he's a consummately skilled actor, and what he was able to do was to really put himself into 
this person going through this experience. And as he said, one of the reasons why he decided to do this was because, in a way, it terrified him. He knew as an actor he was going to be on his back, essentially, for 16, 17 days. Um, and then you know, be a debilitated person post that. Um, so uh, disabled and in that context, and he, this was a, you know, a real physical challenge. And I think, as, you know, because he is a skilled performer, he just said, I'm committing to knowing what this experience is. Um, and he did his homework, and he researched with people who had gotten shot, and, um, and he was able to bring this to life. And by the way, I do hope that he gets recognized, because it's an, truly an amazing performance. So, I mean, it's, it's quite, quite astounding to see it. And therefore, when we're watching it, we're identifying with this guy. He's very appealing. And now this horrendous thing happens to him, and we're right with him on the ride. We never leave him. Now, when you shot it, when you were, you know, because the subject is, I know you went through a near-death experience. So did that have anything in play with yes. it? Yes, it did. Um, yes, it did. Uh, one of the, the gifts of my near-death experience was the idea that I realized that consciousness does not end, that even though your body ends um, and your ego ends, your awareness, that thing we were just talking about, uh, that doesn't. In fact, if anything, that becomes who you are. Um, post the experience of, of dying. Um, and so this character is facing, this character that Noah Wiley plays in shot, he's facing his own mortality. He may very well die. Um, it turns out that the bullet that's going in him has fractured as it happens. I didn't know this, but it happens quite commonly. Bullets sort of fragment when they hit the body and they can hit a bone and then go somewhere else and that place somewhere else inside your body can in fact get damaged to the point at which you can die. And so he's facing the fact that he may very well die. Um, and because I faced that and went through it, um, I was able to talk to Noah at one particular point where he gets to a place of potential both awareness and acceptance of his own potential death. And that's part of the journey that this character takes. And so I was applying my personal experience to that. Um, so I told Noah certain things that I knew. I remember there was a moment when, when he's having this sort of transition, it's when he's having a CAT scan where it's, they're really concerned about where this bullet went. And he's very, very he's freaked out. And then he, a nurse helps him calm down. And as he's in that kind of, if you will, coffin, if anyone's been in a CAT scan, you know, you're kind of, you know, you're really isolated and, 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 and trapped. Um, he goes through a transformative experience and we actually see what he is seeing within his brain. Um, which is a release, and that release was definitely a reflection of my own near-death experience that I had had, and the visuals that you see in the movie, actually some of them were created after my near-death experience that I actually used and incorporated them in that sequence. So on a very personal level, there are a couple of images there that literally reflect my experience, not necessarily the character's experience. Um, they're very short, you know, but... Uh, but they're there and they're real. And um, so, yes, I was applying what I knew about the fact that I had gone through a near-death experience, or sometimes I like to call it a through-death experience, 
Um, and that applied to this character in this movie as well. What happened to you when you went through, I mean, what, what was the factors with your near-death experience? Was it that you, you know, you had a heart attack or something or what happened? And then what brought you well, back? Well, the, the, uh, that's interesting. That's a good question. What brought me back? Um, the, the experience itself was, um, totally unexpected, uh, and, um, unplanned for, um, and I didn't even know what a near death experience was. If you had said NDE to me before this had happened, uh, or even after it happened, I would have had no idea what you were talking about. Um, the specific physical thing, because I was in a place where there were no doctors, what probably happened was hypothermia. Um, so we're looking now at Western medicine to understand what just happened. Um, and hypothermia is, you know, the, when the body is exposed to heat and cold and the, the contrast is so great that the, that the body can shut down and you can die. Um, and that was in terms of the medical, physical, biological, Western point of view of what happened to this particular body, to me, that's probably what happened. Where were you? About. Where were you when it happened? But the specifics were something else. I was actually up in the Malibu Mountains. I, I live in, uh, in in Venice, California, and um, I was doing some work. Um, I was doing this is the days when when these things were being done. I was doing some men's work where men would get together and share and, and experience and. Um, and part of that led to work in what's called sweat lodges, um, which was something I didn't like when I first experienced it and still would say it's, I don't particularly like them because I don't like to go into a very dark place and be extremely hot for a long time and get hotter and hotter and sweat and be really uncomfortable. Not fun, um, but I did this. Um, and the very first time I did it, or actually the second time I did it, it was pretty transformative. It was pretty amazing because you know, when you sweat on the place that you're black and dark and you're sort of with others and you're, you're, you're sort of asked to speak if you want to about prayers for yourself and prayers for others, you, you just you get to a place where you just got to be honest. You just can't lie to yourself. And, and the words that come out of your mouth in those situations are, and even the feelings that are coming up are just, they're really, really honest. And that's why probably for you know thousands and thousands of years in cultures all over the world, people have done this. I mean, there's sweat lodges in, you know, African cultures and Asian cultures and European cultures and obviously in Native American cultures. And this happened to be a Native American sweat lodge that the uh, Oglala actually allow um, the invading Caucasians to experience. Um, and um, uh, so every now and then I would redo these things. And it was the it was um, the day before my birthday, which is in December. And I went up to do a sweat lodge that was being put on. And this particular wasn't one wasn't that sort of as effective as some of the others I've been to on a personal level, but it was extremely hot inside and very cold outside. Uh, and I, when I went from the in, inside to the outside, I uh, lost control of my body. I fell to the ground. I fainted. Um, but I thought I was just, you know, I thought, you know, you're, you're crouched down for 45 minutes or an hour inside that dark, hot space. And that was just what was going on. But in my case, I realized within sort of a number of seconds that um, this wasn't going away. In other words, I wasn't getting my strength back. If anything, I was losing it, uh, losing it to the point that I could not move any of parts of my body. Um, my breath turned into gravel. And, and, uh, I lost hearing and I lost sight. And at the point at which, you know, um, uh, I realized that at first I thought I was just going to be, you know, get over this. But then 
I thought, well, I'm in trouble. They'll call paramedics. And then I thought, as I was thinking that, uh, you know, they're going to take me off to some kind of place where, kind of like Camarillo, and where I won't be able to know if, and see anybody and hear anybody. And it was very terrifying. And then it led to a moment of realization that, in fact, what was happening is I was dying. And that then began a very complex experience that um, is a classic near-death experience in many respects. And um, I wrote a book about it. It's a, a very inexpensive e-book because I wanted to share it with people. And it's also illustrated with about 150 drawings because that's what I do. Um, uh, called My Death, a, a Personal Guidebook, which you can, if you you know, type Google My Death, a Personal Guidebook, it'll come up. And if you're interested in you know, seeing and reading, um, so it's a very short piece, it's like oh, just under 100 pages, um, uh, about a near-death experience, um, you know, it's available to you. And the reason why I wrote it up um, is because it was the shift in the transition for me was the transition to realizing that we don't die. There's a wonderful phrase that I heard learn later. It says, anyone who dies before that person dies, when that person dies, doesn't die. And I was given the gift of dying before I die. Um, and it's allowed me to realize that, you know, we are so much more than our bodies and our personal histories and our, our, um, uh, our psychological makeup. We're... We're, we're consciousness itself. We're a piece of the all. And um, when we can remind ourselves, and by the way, okay, I say this and you'd think, oh, this person seems to be evolved. And I promise you, you know, it, it, you know a, a, a bad review about my movie makes me feel just as lousy having had a near-death experience as it would have before having a near-death experience. So I'm still just as anybody else stuck in you know, the needs and uh, my ego and the desires. But every now and then I can be remind myself that I'm also so much more than all of that. Are you there? Yeah, I'm still there. Okay. Yeah. No, I was going to say, what brought you back? We, we, you... Um, I was brought back because whatever power there are that I have no idea what it is set me back. Uh, I was going through the, the, the release and the and the uh, experience. The what can I can put this? The sensations, even though I was now no longer able to feel anything physically, and uh, but I was now in a, uh, I guess in a way you might call it a dreamscape. I'm trying to sort of find words because I've never had that experience like this, and I haven't had an experience since like this. Um, but there was lots of visual aspects to what was happening. Um, and um, there was an awareness at the near the sort of like at, at one of the most sort of peaceful, blissful parts of the release that this was all about was a, an awareness that where I quote was headed, no longer I, Jeremy didn't exist, but where this piece of consciousness was headed was to be sort of like, the um, best way I can put it is like to be a um, another blazing entity like a star within the endless, and I really mean this, you know, gazillions of other entities of this nature and to be just part of that um, cosmos uh, of, 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 you know, energy centers that, that are just 
what everything has emerged from from the Big Bang, and it was to be a piece of that, you know, like like a, you know, um, uh, uh, and it was totally serene and perfect. And then all of a sudden, as if you took my experience that I had and played it in reverse, having gone off into the past, the if you will, clouds into the sky, into the star fields. I was suddenly pulled back th from that star field, past the planets, and this really was an experience, toward Earth, and I actually saw Earth. I actually saw it as a, this, you know, planet. And rushing at high speeds down into that planet, and interesting enough, not going somewhere else, but anywhere I had been, you know, you, I could feel and see the California, you know, um, uh, coastline, and then into the mountains of Malibu, and then into this specific area, and then there was this body below me, and that body was, I guess, had been mine, and I, then I started to slow down and enter into that body, and I began to regain physical awareness, and I became like a little kid little newborn I couldn't hardly move I could only crawl I hardly could see but my hearing started coming back and and I began to then re-emerge into who I am um, so why I didn't end up a, a star in the endless star field and why I came back into me someone I once told this story said yeah, you know you could have come back into somebody else um, I have no idea that's just what happened that's that's great. I mean, that's just an, it's it's an experience that you know you're sitting there hear about these and you hear people talk about it, you're like wow, it's just something that's so surreal. So I got to ask you, you know, you've had this wonderful career. What got you into directing? I know you grew up in New York. When did you, what what made you get into the entertainment world? Was it as a kid? Did you love movies or how did this whole? I mean, you talked about Bonnie and Clyde earlier, but how did this whole career start? You know. In my case, I must say, just like you asked, why you know, how did you go come back into your body from the near-death experience? You know, somebody, somebody in quotes, somebody, you know, whatever it is, God, energy, you know, the universe, set me back into my body. My becoming a movie maker is also many ways as I track it back. Not something like, you know, the brilliant Steven Spielberg, who at the age of, uh, you know, four months inside his, his mom's womb <laughs> would ever wanted to be a movie maker. As I know, lots of my contemporaries and lots of people that I teach at uh, USC um, really, you know, when they're very young, that's the thing. I saw a movie and that's what I wanted to do. Uh, in my case, that, that was not at all what I wanted to do. Um, I was very fortunate. Uh, when I was a kid, I went to a really wonderful high school in New York City called Horace Mann. Um, and as I sort of track, track what happened to me, I had been interested in something that was called teaching machines. This is back in the, you know, the uh, 1960. Um, uh, this is before computers. Uh, and they were the precursors of computers. And I was interested in them because there was this idea that there was going to be a new learning method. And I don't know why I'd even heard about them, but somehow I had. And I'd read something about them. And maybe I'd, I'd seen some photographs of what they looked like. And, and, they, and I was interested in sort of studying about them. And there was a summer where um, I was in New York and there was a summer program at the school. Um, and I decided, uh, you know, you could you could design what you wanted to study. And I thought I'd study this. And it turned out that nobody knew what 
we were talking about. And so they said, well, you should take another class here. And I thought, you're here. And it turned out that the Russian language was being taught for the first time uh, in a New York high school. This is 1960. Um, and I thought, wow, that's interesting. Russian language. Gee, this, uh, my, my grandparents came from that country. And I thought, you know, and that, they're, they're our enemy. Um, uh, wouldn't it be interesting to learn the language of your enemy so you know a little bit more, more who they were? That was really a, a, a thought process for me. So I took the class, and it turned out that um, I, I was good at that particular language. Uh, maybe it's in my genes. So, um, but I had a great teacher. He was an Irish guy, Mr. Riley, big sort of fat, very, very um, um, garrulous kind of character. He was taking the students out from the class into various places where Russians actually lived in New York so we could experience you know, what a Russian language is like spoken in New York. I remember we went to some coffee shop on the second floor of some place up in the 150th Street, 150th Street, and it was like a, you know, he was like walking into a Dostoevsky uh, a novel. I mean, there was smoke, and there were these, you know, big Russian teapots, and people were playing on balalaikas, and, you know, this was like surreal. But he also took us to see movies. And I remember we saw a double bill at a famous theater in New York, I don't think it exists anymore, called Othelia, which used to show foreign movies. And we were seeing one uh, movie from a famous uh, a play called Inspector General by Gogol that we were reading in Russian. It was, it was an easy play to read in the language. The movie was terrible, uh, but it was playing on a double bill with another movie. And we stayed to see that movie. That movie was a black and white sort of period piece um and it was one of the strangest things i'd ever seen and it also had music that i recognized someone had played for me the music actually within a month before on a record player by prokofiev from the alexander nevsky suite of music i mean this is just total coincidence i've listened to this great piece of music um i'm a musician and so i'm classically trained so i kind of knew this and related to it but really liked it actually the theme of jaws is a is a copy of the theme from this movie called alexander nevsky and i literally watched this movie with my jaw dropping i'd never seen anything like this People burst into song in the middle of an action movie. There was there was this there's incredible battle. Um, this is supposed to be happening in 1200. That was one of the most amazing visual things I'd ever seen. And every single battle scene from um, uh, the, the Mel Gibson movie Braveheart, any of those movies about you know that time, they're all copied the same sequence known as the Battle on the Ice. I didn't know anything about this and. Because it's it's one of the most masterful cinematic uh, sequences in the history of movies, and here we were watching this thing unintentionally, and I remember walking out of the theater and saying, "Who made that?" Now you have to understand, my contemporaries and my students, they know they know who the directors are of these various movies, and they're you know, all totally aware. I didn't when I went to the movies. I had no when I was a kid. I had no idea anybody made them. They just were there. Right. I didn't know people. I, I didn't know names of stars. I'd never, you know, I'd never even heard of a director. Never even, I don't think I ever looked at a credit to even know that there was such a thing as a director. It just meant nothing. But after seeing this movie, Alexander Nevsky, I knew I was watching something that was astounding, unlike anything I'd ever seen. And I asked, who made it? 
Well, it happened to be made by this genius, Sergei Eisenstein, and there was one book that was translated into English. I now, in my library, have all of his books in Russian. He was an encyclopedic mind. He was a total genius. Um, and uh, it was called Film Form and Film Sense, and I read it, and it was a, a book about how film is really an art form. Now, I just thought of film as, you know, swashbucklers and cowboys and, uh, and you know, and great cartoons. I was a big cartoon fan, still am. Um, and, but that was it. I didn't think of them as art or think of them as anything, except they just happened to be there on Saturday afternoons and Sunday afternoons. So um, this shifted my whole consciousness. But I still didn't want to be a movie maker. I just was incredibly excited by it and then interested in it. And then I did write a script while I was in high school because I was sort of interested in it as a form. And I became a little bit more knowledgeable. And at that time in America, we were being exposed for the first time to European filmmakers. And the European filmmakers of that time, the 60s, well, and a little before that, a little after that, were masters from Fellini and Kurosawa in Japan and, and Bergman in Sweden. These were great, great artists making phenomenal movies. And this, we were getting to see these things. And that also shifted my consciousness. But when I was in college, I did take an animation course because I thought I was interested in cartoons. I did direct plays. But I thought I was not going to – I thought I'd maybe go into education. But I was interested in education, and I guess the word would be media, but I don't think that we use the word then. But I was interested in that to some degree. And, um, and I thought, well, maybe I'll sort of like look at the effect that media has, that television has on education. Um, and that's what I would do. And I decided I would first study how to make movies so I knew what that was about, and then go back to an education school and get a PhD and become a scholar about that stuff. Um, and uh, so I decided to go to film school. There were only six at the time in America. Now there are well over a thousand. Um, and uh, I decided to stay in New York because I had no interest in California nor interest in Hollywood. Um, and as I started studying and started making movies, I fell in love with the process. Uh, and I still am in love with the process. It's, it, it, it is an amalgam of every single art form. And since I'm a musician and since I direct, direct plays and theater, since I write, um, um, since I'm a visual artist, it's like all of those things that I love to do, you do as a movie maker because you need all those skills to make movies. So that shifted me. And the American Film Institute was just starting here in Los Angeles. Um, I got a fellowship to come to there after my graduate work at NYU. Um, and by being in Hollywood at the time where Hollywood actually needed young filmmakers because a couple of new films had become giant successes that Hollywood didn't understand, um, Easy Rider and, uh, and the George Lucas's American Graffiti. And so they were looking for young filmmakers. And so that actually, like the timing, not intentional, was I was in the right place at the right time for someone to say, hey, we want you to work in our industry, and that began my career. Now, your your what was your first big movie? Well, first, what was your first professional job, and what was that like because you're in Hollywood? I mean, I know you learn in school, but I'm sure it's a lot different when you're on set, and now things have changed so much. <laughs> it, mean, was, it, it was amazingly different, Steve. <laughs> I mean... You know, I'd work with crews of five people, you know, <laughs> and at the time I had a lot of hair, uh, both on top of my head and below my chin. Um, and, you know, I kind of uh, was a definitely I could be looked on from the outside as, oh, that's one of those hippie type people. That's what I look like. 
Um, and I got my first job because one of the mentors at the AFI was a guy named Frank Pearson, brilliant guy, he wrote things like uh, Dog Day Afternoon and created television shows and, uh, and directed brilliantly as well, fabulous guy. And he, I think, recognized that I had potential and he wanted me to be his assistant first. I had no interest in that because I had no interest in Hollywood. Um, but then um, he was directing a series, or producing, directing a series he created. Um, the series got canceled, so there were some more uh, openings to finish the series because that's what happens. You know, even if it gets canceled, they may have two or three more shows to do. And so he gave me, and it's an incredible gift, by the way. And I look around all my students over the years and thinking, how many times has this gift happened to them? Never. But in my case, he gave me this gift of saying, um, why don't you direct one of the episodes? And um, he sent over an episode. It was about boxing. Now, I'd only worked with five people. And I was very excited. And I storyboarded every single shot. I was really excited. And about three days before I was supposed to start, he sent me another script. The series had been canceled, as I said. And he decided to write another script as the last episode of the series. And I, he gave me that directing job, which is amazing. And the series hero was a wonderful actor named James Garner, and he was the series was called Nichols, and he played a cowboy sheriff, or actually comes to become a sheriff, in a little town in, uh, in the West, in I think the turn of the century, um, maybe, uh, and he doesn't have a gun. And the series was about a sheriff in a Western town that doesn't have a gun, and it was an amazing, funny, smart, witty piece, and it didn't find an audience because. In our cowboy movies, everybody's got to have a gun. So he wrote the last episode in which the opening sequence in this episode of Nichols is Jim Garner playing the sheriff, Nichols, and he is trying to stop a, a, a fight in a pool room, and somebody pulls a gun on him and shoots him and kills him. The series is done. They killed the hero of the series in the opening sequence of this show. That was my very first professional job. You look at me now some four and a half decades later, and here I am making shot, a movie about somebody getting shot. I was just going to say that. It's funny how, you know, everything comes full circle. You know, what's also funny is, not funny, but as is, is, is weird as you did Heroes, which was dealt with post-traumatic stress, which yep. disorder, which people never really talked about, and now... It's everywhere. What was that like? How do you, I mean, do you ever look back and go, wow, you know, I directed something that really, it was, it was before it's time that the topic we were talking about. Yeah, it's fascinating because that was my first feature film, as you said. And, and by the way, my experience on Nichols was here was this guy walking onto the Warner Brothers set uh, with with a hundred people to work with rather than five. That was quite a shock. But, um, you know, I was overly prepared and I still regard that as the way to work. Um, you know, really know what you do your homework. Um, and at Heroes, I did my homework, too. I spent a lot of time with vets who had returned. Um, and a, a lot of them were suffering from physical stuff because, in fact, the opening sequence in this movie, this guy is sort of getting out of a hospital where he's been being treated for some psychological stuff, but he's hanging out with other vets. In this case, they were all vets who had actually been wounded, and they were all in wheelchairs. And I decided to use real vets, not actors playing them. Um, and I did. Uh, and it was pretty powerful to have those men on our set in the very first days of uh, shooting this particular feature film, Heroes. So we were dealing with, interesting enough, a similar issue I'm dealing with now, in where somebody gets shot and uh, immobilized because of the shot. Um, 
they were fabulous men. I was so impressed with them as a courage. In fact, I'll tell you, there was a guy I met in a hospital about two years ago here in L.A., gang member. Um, he's a quadriplegic. Um, that means he cannot move his arms or his legs. The only thing he can move is his neck. And he's been that way for years. And I got to tell you, he is one of the most life-loving human beings I've ever run into. Can you imagine that? That he actually loves life, loves being alive, and yet this is the way his life is? Talk about being able to deal with a, 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 an awareness level when you're a victim. So, um, I, I digress, but, uh, but, but I, I must say that the courage of, of, of those guys and the courage of this particular individual dealing with uh, the results of what guns do is um, uh, just heroic. That's, that's heroism. Now, you've directed a lot of movies, a lot of TV, and now you teach. How do you relate to the students because the technology has changed so much. Is it still, do you teach them all just in the storytelling? Because you've, you've directed some amazing TV shows, you know what I mean? I know you directed the pilot of uh, Dr. Quinn and stuff like that, and, you know, West Wing, but how do you relate to the students now? You know, um, storytelling is storytelling. Um, same aspects. you got, you know, you, you got a setup, and how are you going to pay off that setup? Um, you've got characters, and how are you going to make us care about these people? You've got the issues of suspense and surprise and the issues of shock and the issues of conflicts, both internal and external. <clears throat> That's always been true since, uh, you know, a bunch of guys and gals got around a hot fire in, uh, you know, 20,000 years ago and grunted at each other to the beginning of the first stories. Um, it's, it's still the same. Uh, so the, the basic uh, tenets of storytelling and even the basic tenets of visual storytelling are are really the same the technology has changed enormously um you know uh, and in that sense it's it's it, i think in one way phenomenally um uh you know uh, speedy and that's exciting and i happen to be a guy who, who relates to that accelerated uh, processes of creating something sometimes i relate to it too strongly you know, and uh, when I was a, a filmmaker starting out, we were actually using film. And it was kind of, at least particularly in the editorial part, it was very hands-on. You actually touched this stuff, you know. You, 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 you actually used little scissors and uh, devices that would cut it, and you had this tactile nature to it. That's lost. And I feel that that's an, a strange loss. It's been, you know, it's been replaced by, you know, the speed of the computers. So th that's a whole, you know, a wonderful asset to, to being able to do so many things. But here's an interesting problem that I do see with some of the students. Because you can do anything and do it so quickly, the homework and the preconception, the actual figuring out what you really want to do and then figuring out how to execute it, sometimes they don't do that as much. And in many ways, they get caught by not having really done the, the, if you will, homework of figuring out how this is going to get told. How are you going to use your camera? Just getting in there and just, you know, shooting everything. And then walking into an ending room with so much material that they really don't quite know how to pull it all together. So that becomes a challenge for them. 
But that's the reality of our lives here in terms of storytelling and filmmaking, because every one of us, you know, uh, you can make a movie with your iPhone. A wonderful movie made a couple of years ago called Tangerine. The whole movie was shot on an iPhone, you know, and edited on a computer at home. This is this is the world we live in. Everybody's a filmmaker. Everybody, you know, I, I, you know the, the, the camera is the pencil of today. Um, and in that sense, um, that's a, both a wonderful opportunity for all of us and also a big challenge because to do it well requires your understanding all of the elements of classic dramaturgy and all the elements of filmmaking. Uh, therefore, I think it's good for many people who really want to do this to actually go to film schools because you can actually learn this stuff and by learning it, you can get much better at it. So in a way, it's a it's new, and in a way, it's just as old as the beginning of storytelling. I mean, I was showing the movie shot to some of uh, our students just recently, and even yesterday, there was an interesting dialogue about the issues that, and these are more social issues and, uh, than they were sort of craft issues, because the craft in this particular movie is very, very contemporary, um, so it's not an old-fashioned movie by any means. Um, but the issues, interesting enough, shift because I remember I did a movie called Judge D, which was a television movie way back in the 70s, and it was um, and I determined it was coming coming from Chinese uh, 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 a series of, of uh, detective stories, the Judge D detective stories, and I decided, although I was working for ABC at the time, that I should be an all Asian cast and. I fought them on this, and they they wanted to have some Caucasian white guy with uh, you know with pulling his eyes back like David Carradine did in Kung Fu, which was a giant success. And they wanted to do something similar with this, and I said no, no, we've got to be honest about this, and we cast all Asians, um, and the problem was that I couldn't find all Chinese actors here in this country in Los Angeles particularly, so I was using Koreans and Japanese and. One of my students in the class, when we were talking about this stuff just yesterday, said, well, how come you just didn't use all Chinese? I mean, you know, using Asians, using a Korean to play a Chinese person, like having an Irish person play, playing an Italian. Right. And I thought, here's the difference in the time. In 1974, when we did this thing, this was revolutionary to have an all-Asian cast. In 2017, if you're going to do a story about Chinese people... You should be using all Chinese. But then I suspect if we did that and we use somebody who's Han versus somebody from another part of China, Mongolia or whatever, you'd still have, well, that's not right either. So it's, you know, the, the if you will, the kind of ethics, uh, social ethics of a generation shifts. And that was sort of fascinating. I got to ask you one thing, and I talked about a guest about this before about the movies. Do you think it changes from the director and the actors? Because you know, when you started out, it was on film, as you said, and you you really worried about the budget because you had to get these long takes done. You just couldn't edit. Now that it's digital, you know, this this actor told me that a lot of times these a lot of younger actors they don't really act as much because they know if they screw up, they can get they can get do it right again real quick because it's digital. That's fascinating. I think that applies also. I think that applies also to um, all aspects of filmmaking, and I think it's a danger um, because an actor, you know, just looking at Noah Wiley's performance in Shot, this is an act 
actor who really has studied acting. He understands how to create a character and how to create that character over time. You know, um, we had a, a young actor, his name is uh, uh, George Lindbergh Jr., who plays the 17-year-old kid. And he, this is like, this is his second movie. He now is the star of Bumblebee. His career is just skyrocketing. But his, he's not a trained actor. Um, he has a natural capacity, which is really amazing. So there's a, he has this natural ability, but he doesn't have technique. And he ran into lots of problems on um, this movie, and I think that was his first movie, which happened to be directed by one of my former students, um, because he didn't have the techniques. He's learning them. And uh, we had a Q&A just a couple days ago, and he was thanking Noah and Xander Berkeley, who was in our movie as well, for helping him learn some techniques because, you know, it is a skill. Um, it isn't something like you just walk in and do it. Yes, you can shoot forever. You can have five cameras shooting on, uh, forever. All that's true. But, you know, it can all be junk if the people behind the camera and the people in front of the camera don't really have the skills. So I think it's a danger for all of us to believe, oh, anybody's a filmmaker. Uh, you know, because uh, we all are because we all turn on our cell phones. But to make it good, well, that's something else. Cool. Well, I, I want to thank you for taking the time and coming on today. I'm glad John got us in touch. Now, shot is in, it's coming out. I think you said December 5th on video on demand. That's correct. In December, the first weeks in December, it will be on video on demand, um, and then there'll be uh, DVDs, I believe, in the beginning of the year. Although I don't think anybody gets DVDs. But you know, they'll still be our Blu-rays. Um, so uh, look forward then, um, and I hope uh, you know you you whoever is listening to this goes and or gets the way to see this movie and spreads it if you feel that it's a valuable um, way of dealing with this issue of gun violence. Cool. I want to thank you for coming on, people. So go look up Jeremy Kagan on IMDb and check out his great body of work and go write some of his old movies. You know, because that's what I always do. I always tell people, go check out these people's work because if you're not too familiar with the person who directed it, you know the movies because there's a lot of movies you've noticed. So people... Go, go check out Jeremy. Uh, follow me on Twitter, people. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can also email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. And don't forget my other project, uh, my cookbook. Remember when I had that heart problem? I got out and I wrote a easy, basic cookbook. It's uh, called Stop the Salt. It's 120 low-sodium recipes. No pictures to intimidate you. No long lists of ingredients. Just easy stuff to make. You can get it at Amazon.com, but if you get it at StopTheSalt.com, I'll autograph it for you, and I make more money. So people, check out Jeremy's work. Make sure you check out his new movie. When it comes out, you're going to check it out. Uh, Noah Wiley may be getting some Oscar run. I've heard some very good things about it. So people, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Thank you for listening to Cooper Talk, presented by Walk My Mind.